0: the controls on this remote unit, the volume is fully variable. Should the telephone ring or guests arrive. Okay. Thank you all for attending my halftime seminar. And I would also like to especially thank the committee for taking their time and effort to review my progress so far. As this seminar represents the midpoint of my road towards a PhD, I thought of it as a good opportunity to gather my thoughts around what I'm doing and try to make them more coherent to myself and hopefully to you as well. When I'm working with research, I find it easy to get caught up in the details of what I'm doing, and I sometimes lose sight of the underlying big idea. I look at the trees, but I don't see the forest. So for this presentation, I wanted to think about the common elements of my projects in as simple terms as possible. What is it we are doing, and why is it important? And I came to the conclusion that the primary purpose of my projects is to challenge the black box approach to ICU metabolism. You're all familiar with a black box. It's a system where we don't know anything about what's going on inside. We can only observe what goes in and what comes out. Now, under normal physiological circumstances, this approach works fairly well in nutrition and metabolism. as The body is effective at regulating energy balance. So even though we now have a very intricate understanding of how all of this works, You don't necessarily need to know all this to predict the outcomes of, say, going on a long fast or eating Ben & Jerry's every day for a month. Essentially, the old French proverb applies. You are what you eat. But our workplace in the ICU is an exception to this rule. When people become very sick, their metabolism goes into survival mode. They become extensively catabolic. They develop a resistance to anabolic signals, and they lose their appetites. Now, from an evolutionary perspective, this is probably beneficial as it provides substrates for all the processes necessary for survival. But on the downside, there's a significant depletion of energy reserves and muscle mass. So even if this was a necessary adaptation in the prehistoric context, in modern times, it becomes less clear. Because when we can keep people alive in the ICU for weeks or months, the loss of lean body mass related to long-term starvation and persistent catabolism may preclude any meaningful form of recovery for our patients. So if we return to the old proverb, Is a deficit in calories and protein harmful during critical illness and can we mitigate these harms by providing isocaloric nutrition and more protein? Our guidelines tend to promote this position, despite admitting that we have quite meager evidence in support of it. The alternate hypothesis is that the metabolic response to stress is so hardwired that it's almost impossible to suppress with exogenous nutrition. So the food we give our patients will only impose a metabolic burden. Or the truth could be somewhere in between. It could vary from patient to patient and may be a lot more complex than what would be convenient for us. Giving different amounts of calories ICU patients has actually been quite thoroughly investigated in the last five years or so but the results have been anything but conclusive. I believe that one of the reasons these trials fail to show clear benefits or harms is due to the heterogeneity of ICU patients. ICU patients are a very diverse group with regards to their age, their comorbidities, their acute illness, and also the time course of their disease. And clinical trials are, by their very nature, a black box investigation. We provide an intervention, and then good or bad outcomes result. But if the hypothesis behind this intervention is too vague or generic, then it's hard to expect to see a clear-cut benefit. So to develop better hypotheses to test, we need to look inside the black box of ICU metabolism. I believe that this is the core idea behind the projects of my thesis and, in general, the work we do in our group. This brings us to the first question behind my studies. Can we reliably and conveniently perform a quantitative assessment of metabolic rate, energy expenditure, in ICU patients? The short answer is yes, and we've been able to do so for quite some time. The only practical method for this in the ICU is by indirect calorimetry. The theory behind this is that under aerobic conditions, all energy substrates can be completely oxidized to CO2 and water for ATP and heat. Now, if we know the amount of oxygen required to completely oxidize a given amount of a substrate, we can calculate the energy liberated on a whole body level by measuring oxygen consumption and carbon dioxide production. Now, regardless of how we interpret these measurements, for them to have any value to us, they have to be accurate. And performing accurate measurements in the ICU is especially difficult, given the presence of high FiO2s, high airway pressures, a lot of humidity, and irregular breathing patterns. Now, the delta track, pictured here in the middle, has been validated in vivo in an ICU setting during the late 80s and early 1990s against the Fick Principle, MASPIC, and has since been considered the gold standard for indirect calorimetry in the ICU. The problem is they're not making new delta tracks, so we need to find other instruments to try to replace it. To understand the rationale behind validation studies, you need to be familiar with the distinction between mixing chamber and breath-by-breath systems. The delta track is a mixing chamber. Essentially, it's a big box that collects all the exhaled gas from a patient. It measures inspiratory and expiratory O2 and CO2 concentrations. It then dilutes the exhaled gas a known constant flow of room here. From this, it can calculate VCO2 and then derive RQ and VO2 as well. Most modern devices instead use so-called breath-by-breath technology, where flow is measured by some form of spirometry, and gas concentrations are sampled over every breath. But due to the time lag between spirometry and gas sampling, These curves need to be superimposed upon each other to calculate VO2 and VCO2. This requires software algorithms that can correctly identify the initiation and termination of every breath, which introduces a potential source of error in ICU patients where breathing patterns can be highly irregular. This brings us to the first study of my PhD project where the aim was to compare energy expenditure, as measured by the delta track, to two new instruments, the CCM Express and the Quark RMR. We did this by performing measurements in sequence with all three devices in randomized order. We measured the parameters of interest under what we considered clinically stable conditions, and then at the end of the sequence, we performed a fourth measurement with the first device and used the average of those two measurements to account for any changes in the patient's metabolic state over time. The results, a total of 48 measurements in 24 patients. There was no difference in the mean energy expenditure as measured by the cork and delta track. There was a significant difference between the CCM and delta track. Here you can see this illustrated in the Bland-Alpha plots. On the y-axis, you have the difference between the methods, and on the x-axis, the mean of both methods. And as you may notice here as well, the so-called limits of agreement, that is, two standard deviations of the difference between the methods, are a lot wider for the CCM delta-track comparison and the core delta-track comparison. Express this percentage error 32 versus 22%. These results were published in 2013 in the Clinical Nutrition Journal. And we followed this by performing a similar study. We were approached by GE, who wanted us to validate their new metabolic monitor against the delta track in an ICU setting. And we also included the quark RMR, as we now own one in our unit. And we wanted to improve upon the methodology from the first study. So We now performed simultaneous 20 minute measurements with the delta track and one of the test devices. We randomized the order between the test devices, and we also had a mandatory run-in period of 15 minutes to make sure the delta track was completely saturated with alveolar gas. Data was collected at the highest possible sampling rate for all instruments, and as For example, coughing or very irregular breathing can cause artifacts in the breath-by-breath instruments, which falsely lower VO2 and VCO2. These were removed by predefined criteria. This is just an illustration of the connection to the ventilator circuit. All three instruments were connected at the same time to minimize the risk of entraining room air into the system. And we just used a simple T-piece to switch between the COVX and quark, so there were no disconnections between the measurements. The results, again, 48 measurements in 22 patients. Both instruments measured slightly higher VO2 and VCO2 than the delta track to a similar degree, around 10% higher, and the limits of agreement were also similar, 21 and 22%, respectively. Here you can see this illustrated in Landaupland Plots as well. And these results were published in 2016 in the Critical Care Journal. After my second question, even if we can reliably measure energy expenditure, how do we apply that information in clinical practice? Guidelines recommend that energy delivery is matched to energy expenditure to promote a neutral energy balance. But nobody has convincingly demonstrated that this actually improves outcomes. Also, indirect calorimetry gives us no information regarding the proportions of endogenous and exogenous substrates that are oxidized, which could have a significant impact on the optimal nutritional therapy for a patient. What we do know is that there's a significant variability in energy expenditure in ICU patients. Now, traditionally, these patients have been considered to be hypermetabolic, but larger, more recent observational studies have debunked this assertion. Most patients actually have an average energy expenditure. Some will be hypermetabolic, others will be hypometabolic. It's very hard to predict who's who without measuring, And also, we have no idea what this variability means for substrate utilization and substrate turnover in our patients. So for my fourth study, we want to investigate this. The aim is to quantify the turnover of all three macronutrients, glucose, protein, lipids, in ICU patients. And as an exploratory outcome, we want to analyze substrate turnover in relation to energy expenditure, trying to capture patients on the full range from hypometabolic to hypermetabolic. Is there a difference? The principle behind quantifying substrate fluxes in ICU patients is to use a tracer methodology. The tracer is a molecule that is structurally unique from the compound of interest that we're studying but it is handled the same way in the body. In our group, we use stable isotope tracers, which are molecules that are marked by hydrogen or carbon atoms with a different mass number. If we infuse a tracer, and then at steady state, we measure the tracer concentration in plasma, and also the concentration of the substrate of interest, called the C. we can then calculate the flux of substrate into the plasma, and from this we can derive other kinetic parameters as well, such as breakdown, synthesis rates, oxidation, depending on the methods used. For this study, we want to recruit mechanically ventilated ICU patients, hopefully 18 of them. At the start of the study, we will begin infusions of enteral and intravenous stable isotope tracers, we will also give an enteral infusion of 3-O-methyl glucose to measure intestinal glucose uptake. During these infusions, we will also be performing a continuous measurement of indirect calorimetry. The rates of appearance for All the different substrates will be calculated at 180 minutes after the start of the IV tracers at presumed steady state. Where are we on this now? Well, we have ethical approval. We're awaiting reply to a small amendment to the protocol. The study is being prospectively registered and hopefully we can start recruiting patients later this year after the summer. The third question of my thesis concerns the handling of exogenous nutrients, specifically amino acids. It's a known fact that ICU patients are in a state of negative protein balance. But the evidence behind our guidelines for protein or amino acid delivery in the ICU is fairly weak. We wanted to investigate if giving intravenous amino acids to ICU patients could improve their protein balance. This had already been investigated by my colleague, Dr. Lebow, during a three-hour infusion. He found that this improved net protein balance without increasing indices of oxidation. We now wanted to see if this response could be sustained for up to 24 hours. and as Secondary outcome measures, we wanted to monitor safety concerns such as increased protein oxidation, plasma urea concentration, and also plasma-free amino acid concentrations. We did this by recruiting ICU patients who were adults, who had an arterial line for sampling, who were not on renal replacement therapy, and also who were expected to complete the protocol. So if they were due for transfer in less than 24 hours, we didn't include them. And these patients were all fed according to local guidelines, most enterally, some exclusively parenterally. The only thing we asked was that nutrition was not changed during the study period. This is an illustration of the protocol. At time zero, we started the enteral tracer of 13C-phenylalanine. And then after two hours, we started the intravenous infusions of stable isotope tracers, phenylalanine and tyrosine. At around five hours, we took blood samples to quantify baseline protein kinetics. After this, we started a balanced intravenous amino acid infusion corresponding to around one gram per kilogram per day of protein delivery. We took new samples after three hours, and then we repeated the protocol on day two for the 24-hour measurements. The results, we recruited eight patients that completed the full protocol. We recruited a total of 12, but four could not be measured at all three time points due to clinical circumstances. The medium protein or amino acid delivery, increased from around 0.94 to 1.91 grams per kilogram per day and energy delivery was also increased, of course, by the infusion. We saw an improved net protein balance over time from the amino acid infusion and in the post-hoc analysis of the ANOVA we saw no difference between the 3-hour and the 24-hour time form. We did not see a significant increase in indices of protein oxidation as measured by phenylalanine hydroxylation rate or plasma urea concentrations. We did, however, see an increase in plasma-free amino acid concentrations over time. This figure just illustrates the change in net protein balance over time in the eight patients who completed the protocol. The red line is the mean of these measurements. And I think this study demonstrates that although these kinetic measurements are just snapshots in time of what's going on in a patient there and then, these measurements are repeatable. And as such, they can be used to monitor (coughs) the effects of therapeutic interventions over time and serve as a necessary complement to clinical trials, looking at more patient-centered outcomes. To summarize what we've been talking about, yes, energy expenditure can be reliably measured in the ICU, but it's important to validate your equipment and to know how it works. Does energy expenditure provide any information on substrate turnover? Is there a difference between hypo and hypermetabolic patients? We don't know. Hopefully we will know more in the near future. Giving balanced IV amino acids to ICU patients improves net protein balance without increasing protein oxidation. I think this demonstrates that potential therapies need physiological investigations as a complement. So hopefully my studies have and will shed some light into the black box of ICU metabolism. Because I think in the long run, understanding our patients better, individualizing therapy, is necessary to helping them. Just wrapping up, I need to get study three published. The manuscript is complete and ready for submission we need to finish study four. This will hopefully be done by 2018. I need to get some more academic credits, and then hopefully I can present all of this to you again in two to three years from now at a dissertation. With that, I thank you for your attention and welcome your questions.